Good morning, grace and peace to you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our scripture today from Luke 15, the second half of the parable of the prodigal son, starting at verse 25 through the end of the chapter. Now, the father's elder son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. He replied, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has got him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and he refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him, but he answered his father, listen, for all these years I've been working like a slave for you and I've never disobeyed your command, yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Then the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is, is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, this morning we conclude our study of Luke chapter 15. The parables of lostness. It's been five weeks since we began. And in those five weeks, life as we know has changed for everyone. It's unprecedented, this place we find ourselves in. But God's word remains constant. It doesn't change. But as we change and our world changes, we come to appreciate God's word more and more. And that has certainly been my experience with Luke chapter 15 in the last month and particularly the last couple weeks. It has new meaning and new urgency for me. So as we close, let me just speak my gratitude to both you as a church and to God for the opportunity to work through these texts and be amazed yet again at how God's word speaks. If you can remember all the way back to March 1st, feels like a lifetime ago, we began with Jesus sitting with sinners and tax collectors, reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees are looking on and they're grumbling at Jesus' association with these people. We talked about Jesus' desire for repentance for all people, that all people would turn from their own way from sin and instead turn to Jesus and reorient their lives towards him in a life of righteousness. We talked about how Luke 15, the chapter, is an inclusio, meaning that it starts and it ends at the same place, like bookends to the story. The story begins with the Pharisees grumbling, and it ends with the older brother grumbling. While the Pharisees, uh, while the parables of the lost sheep And the lost coin, they give us a view into the character of God, which we talked about. This chapter leads us to the parable of the prodigal son. And the story of the younger son that we talked about last week is unquestionably the emotional climax of this chapter. And it's the best view that we have into the character of God. But the older brother, 
is actually what brings this chapter back into its original focus. It brings us back to why Jesus spoke these parables in the first place. Jesus was reclining with sinners and tax collectors and celebrating their act of repentance. Remember, by being with him, these sinners and tax collectors are already indicating that they are turning from themselves, from their lives of sin, and are reorienting their lives towards Jesus. The process of repentance has begun. And this brings us to the fourth and final aspect of the gospel of Jesus as he he understood it and preached it and taught it that we see so well in Luke 15. And it's celebration. We can't understand the gospel of Jesus without an understanding of celebration. Celebration is visible in all three of the parables in this chapter. It's It's the constant between these parables. The shepherd rejoices when the sheep is returned to the fold. The woman gathers her friends and celebrates finding the lost coin. And the father serves up the fattened calf to his wayward son in celebration because he has returned home. Enter the older brother who is having difficulty celebrating his brother. Why is he unable to enter into the celebration for his brother? Well, I think there are several reasons, but they all boil down to feeling like the father isn't being fair. It's an issue of the father's fairness. If we put ourselves in the shoes of this older brother, we would probably feel exactly the same way. The cost is great for this man. The celebration dinner is costly for sure. The most costly uh, celebration that the father's probably ever thrown. But that pales in comparison to the cost of bringing this younger brother, the prodigal son, back into the family. Remember from last week, the father sold one-third of his land and gave it to his prodigal son who wasted it all. But get this, by welcoming back this son into the family, the son is now owed one-third of the wealth that is left. This is an immense loss for the older brother. And it is unfair. So he adds up all of these things, how much his own wealth, his inheritance has been cut down. And he says, for all these years I've been working like a slave for you, Father. And I've never disobeyed your command. And yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I can celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. To the older brother, This is deeply unfair and it's deeply wrong. And his father needs to know it. Now I am uh, a younger brother. Much like this parable, I have only one sibling and it's an older brother who's two and a half years older than me. His name is Nate. He's a a gifted artist and teacher in St. Paul, Minnesota. He was the best man in my wedding. He makes me laugh more than anyone else on the planet. And he's one of my dearest friends in adulthood. But man, in childhood, even as friends who loved each other, we were at each other and we were competitive. Neither of us wanted to lose or give any ground to the other. Whether it was playing basketball or making videos or playing music, each one of us wanted to be the best. Now we're both at the point in our lives where we can legitimately be happy for any successes that the other has. No jealousy, no disdain, just love for one another, but it wasn't always that way. And maybe this is how brothers are with one another, 
The Bible certainly has their share of brothers who deal with conflicts and and competitions of every kind. Cain and Abel, and, and Jacob and Esau, and Joseph and his brothers. And that's just in the first book of the Bible, people. So here we see these two brothers following that biblical and probably human pattern. As as my brother and I have moved deeper into adulthood, into parenthood, into our careers, I think we've become more secure and less competitive with one another, realizing that even though we're very different people, if you met us, you would feel like we're very different people in some ways, we are much more alike than we are dissimilar as brothers. Likewise, in this parable, I think these brothers are more alike than dissimilar. Let me make the case for you. Three ways that I think these brothers are actually similar to one another. The first is this. The older brother rejects the father just as much as the younger brother does. True, the younger brother takes an early inheritance, which is highly disrespectful. And as we said last week, that the younger brother is saying to the father, essentially, you're dead to me. I don't need you, you're dead to me. He's fundamentally rejecting life in the presence of his father. But the older brother does exactly the same thing, by the way. He refuses to go into what is perhaps the biggest public feast that this father has ever put on. It's an open rebellion for the older son to stand in judgment of his father and refuse to be in his presence at his party. Second way that they're similar is the older brother is pursued by the father just as much as, as the younger brother is. The text tells us that the father walks out. He leaves the party and comes out to the older brother outside. It would have been demeaning for a father to have to leave a party that he was the host of. But he pursues his son. And he endures much disrespect from this child. In verse 29, the son doesn't even address him as father. I don't know if you picked up on that. He just says, listen here. In a culture where respect and deference to elders was very important, this kind of behavior is outrageous. And how does the father respond to this open rebellion? He had every right to disown this son on the spot. But he doesn't do that. Look at verses 31 and 32. Then the father said to him, Son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. In other words, the father is saying, I still want you at the feast. I'm still pursuing you. This is no less touching than the father running out, bearing his ankles to meet the younger son. Third way that they're similar. The older brother is in need of repentance just as much as the younger brother is. This older brother, he never left the father. He was a good and loyal son. He worked hard. He added value. He didn't rebel. He didn't squander what he had been given. But this reaction to the younger brother, tells us that the older brother is far from his father emotionally. Probably as far away from his father emotionally as the younger son was physically. He had clearly wandered from the heart of his father in both his heart and his mind. 
And what comes out in this interaction is bitterness and resentment. Henri Nouwen, who wrote extensively on the parable of the prodigal son, notes how corrosive the older brother's resentment is. This brother is in need of serious repentance as well. He needs to come to himself, just as his brother did in, the, in, in that pigsty. He needs to come to himself and realize that he has wandered far from his father and he needs to return to the presence of his father in his heart. You see, these brothers are much more alike than dissimilar. For this reason, there are many scholars who, who note that actually we shouldn't be calling this the parable of the prodigal son. We should be calling it something like the parable of the prodigal sons and the merciful father. Perhaps the way in which they are most similar is their rejection of their father's presence. We talked about this last week a little bit. The, the younger son wants the benefits of his father's kingdom, but he rejects the presence of the father. And I think we're being confronted with the very same right now. How often we seek the benefits that God can offer us, but we don't really want his presence. How we can claim to love God, but then go our own way, setting our own agenda eating what we want, doing what we want to do, being with whoever we want to be with, building our portfolios, our agendas, our health, our wealth, our careers. When those things are taken from us or those things are jeopardized, we realize how so often we go through life seeking the benefits of a loving and benevolent and good God, but we go our own way and we forget his presence. This is a hallmark of our age that we want all the benefits of the kingdom of God, but so often we don't want the king. The same is certainly true for this older brother. He wants the benefits he can receive from his father, but he stands on the outside, far away from his father's presence. Now, if you're like me, when you put this whole parable together, you might be identifying with one brother or the other in your own life. I certainly identify with the older brother a lot. I've never rebelled significantly in my life or in my faith. I've, I've mostly stayed at home with God without prolonged wayward experiences of any kind. And I can tend to stand in judgment of other people if I'm not careful. I remember one of the times really identifying as the older brother, I, I made a, a really dear friend in my years of seminary. He's about 10 years older than me and one of the reasons I was so drawn to him as a friend was that he had a totally different faith story than I did. He didn't grow up with much faith background at all, didn't have really any faith influence in his home, and stumbled upon a Christian college as, a, as an 18-year-old where he gave his life to Christ, but before giving his life to Christ, lived a very prodigal and wayward life that he talked with me openly about. I remember hearing his story and I had this strange feeling like being the older brother, like I was jealous of his story in a way because he had this incredible conversion story that colored the whole rest of his life. And I remember saying to him, you know, I feel like the older brother a little bit and, and, I, and I'm jealous of your story of conversion and I think you have an urgency for the gospel that I wish I had. And he came back quickly to me and he said, oh, I would give anything to trade my story with your story. Having stayed at home, been with the Father, been, been, been in, a, in a loving Christian 
home your whole life and not having to go with, live with some of the memories of that prodigal living. I wish I could have that. And I remember this, this amazing moment of communion as friends together going, you know what? Our stories are not that different because we both are, are, are seeking to have Jesus be the king of our lives. And that's what's important. See, it might not be really helpful for us to identify with one brother or the other in the story because the thing that matters is that we join the party that Jesus has instituted because that's where the Father is and we desire to be in the Father's presence. We're all called to repentance and that repentance, that turning is going to lead us away from our prodigal and sinful lifestyles or our disdainful, joyless hearts towards the Father. Repentance leads to celebration. When we repent, we can celebrate others. A lot of commentators and writers about this parable assume that Jesus is using the older brother as, a, as an avatar of sorts for the Pharisees. A way of humbling them. But that's simply not the case. As my friend Klein Snodgrass, who has led me through his, his writing faithfully through this entire sermon series, he says it definitively. The parab- this parable has no intention of describing the Pharisees' relation to God or their status uh, with regard to the kingdom of God. What the parable does is contrast the attitude of the Father in this story, who is God, and the attitude of the elder son toward the repentant. The contrast is between celebration and disdain. Let me say that again. The contrast that's set up in this parable and in the whole chapter of Luke 15 is between celebration and disdain. Which one are we going to choose? These parables exist because the Pharisees can't bring themselves to celebrate the repentance of these sinners and tax collectors as they move towards Jesus. And that's why this chapter ends the way that it does. Here's how it ends. The father's talking to the older son. He's saying, you're always with me. All that I have is yours, but we're going to celebrate your brother because he was lost and now he's found. It's a cliffhanger. What's what's the brother going to do? What's the older brother going to do? Is he going to join the party or not? The next chapter abruptly moves to Jesus sharing with his disciples the parable of the dishonest manager. Now now it's possible that Luke, the gospel writer, just forgot to finish this parable and tell us what the brother chose. Did he end up coming into the party or not? But I don't think so. I think it's meant to be a cliffhanger. I think it's a direct challenge to everyone who would read this parable from the time it was written until now. Will we join the party or are we going to stay outside? So I want to close with two questions for all of us to consider this morning, no matter where you are in your faith journey. And I want you to continue to ask these questions in the weeks to come. Questions that that flow directly from this text of the older brother, but I think can offer us hope in a time where many of us are struggling with hope. If we're going to join the party, we need to ask these two questions of ourselves. The first is, am I willing to stop grumbling about God being unfair? I've had several conversations with some of you in the last couple weeks contemplating God's presence or absence in the midst of our current crisis. I think this global crisis is 
causing a lot of people to ask big questions. How could God let this happen? This doesn't seem fair. But let's stop on that for a second. What are we really saying when we ask this question? <laughs> we're essentially saying, if, if, if I were God, I would do things this way. Or if God is the way that the Bible says he is, or I think it says he is, then he should do things this way. This is a dangerous place to be, my friends. Job, a man in the Old Testament, asks these questions of God. Why would you let this happen? And God actually answers him. And he proceeds to ask Job 77 successive, successive questions over five chapters, which basically boil down to one question. How can you possibly comprehend me? Who do you think you are, Job? You see, we waste our time grumbling about God's fairness or lack thereof because God's ways are unknowable on this side of heaven. But the good news that we proclaimed four weeks ago is that if we want to know what God is like, we need only look to Jesus. He is the image of God. And in the economy of Jesus, not everything is fair. Not everyone was healed by Jesus. There were people who died even though Jesus was nearby. There were people who misunderstood Jesus and rejected him. And yet Jesus pursued and pursued and ultimately he redefines what unfair means when he goes to the cross. Paying the penalty for a sin that he never committed, not even once. And in its fundamental unfairness, celebration is born. Resurrection celebration is born because there's life beyond death. There's joy beyond sorrow. There is faith beyond our questions. And that is what we call grace. Grace, by definition, is unfair. It's getting what is not deserved. Are we willing to stop grumbling and recognize that Jesus is not going to be bound by our understanding of him as God? Can we join the party and celebrate grace even if we don't totally get it? Because here's the good news. The celebration is for all who repent. So if we can repent of our tendency to tell God the Father what to do and how to act, we find ourselves able to join the party and enjoy his presence. The second question, do I have eyes to see what God is doing in the lives of others? And can I celebrate that? I've been looking for encouragement. I, I, I'm hungry for it, sometimes desperate for it in these days. And one place that I found the most encouragement is in the spiritual hunger I see in others. This crisis, my friends, it is turning up all sorts of questions in all of us, in people near to God and people who are far from God. God is doing a work in my heart so that I can see that and I can celebrate that in others. And I know that even as we grieve and lament here and now, that God is celebrating every single heart that is beginning a process of turning towards him. I know that he's using this time, this unique time, to draw people near to him who have been far off. I want to see that, and I want to celebrate that in the way that God does. Think, think of the people in your life who are more tender to God right now, maybe than they've ever been. 
Are you talking with them about it? Are you celebrating that? Are you giving thanks to God for that? If so, you have begun to grasp the power of Luke chapter 15 and the parables of lostness and a God who pursues. You are beginning to understand the mysterious and holy gospel of Jesus at its core. So my final word this morning is ask those questions and join the party because God, through Jesus and his Holy Spirit, are doing incredible things right now to bring the world to the table where Jesus is sitting and reclining and eating with them. Do you see it? Can you celebrate it? Do you recognize your family, your friends, your neighbors who are tender to God right now and are turning towards him in this hour of need? Will you celebrate God's work? Will you join the party? We don't know if the older brother did, but we can. And we can do it today. May it be so. Let's pray. God, would you give us the humility to put aside our senses of what's fair and what's not? Would you give us eyes to see your work, even in this difficult time, this time of lament? The amazing ways in which you're working through your spirit to draw people closer to you. Lord, would you help us to join the party in the face of a time in our world right now where it feels like celebration is a long way off? Would you cause us to celebrate, Lord? To celebrate with Jesus. And just as we look forward, Lord, to gathering together again and and, and being face-to-face and being able to say, here's what God has been up to. We recognize that even as we celebrate now your presence, we are gaining a foretaste of the heavenly feast, the heavenly celebration which is without end in your presence. So we say, come Lord Jesus. Continue to pursue us. We so easily get lost. We so easily wander off. Thank you, Lord, that you continue to pursue us. May we see that. May we run back to you with our bodies, our minds, our hearts. We recognize that we are lost. It's our desire that we would be found by you. And we thank you, Lord, for your grace. That we get more than we deserve. Because of your son, Jesus Christ. Who took that unfairness of the world in his own body. So that we don't get what we deserve. Instead, we get grace. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Jesus.